0: Man, it feels good to be living, eternally I'm forgiven, without a care in the world, just
1: catch me coasting and dipping, catch me moving around, I love exploring this
0: world, in and out of my town. I walk hey, what's up guys, welcome to that Postmill Podcast, where my lame, senseless humor is about to be shown how horrible it is by the great mind behind Presbyterian memes tonight. Woo! We got Paul Barth on here.
2: How's hey Paul. How's it going? How are you doing?
0: I don't know if everybody knows this, but the the brilliant mind of Presbyterian memes comes from Paul Barth. He hails from Texas, right? Yes. The country of Texas. Where in Texas Mm -hmm. are you from?
2: Well, I'm not from Texas, but I'm living in College Station right now, going to Texas A&M, so.
0: Okay. What are you going to school for? I'm
2: going to school for Geographic Information Science and Technology. Just basically like, if you've ever played with Google Earth, it's kind of like a sophisticated, there's lots of sophisticated programs like that, that you make maps with and plot stuff, crunch data, stuff like that.
3: Sounds like fun. Yeah. What kind of job, uh, what kind of job are you looking to get
2: into? You want to work for Google? Well, right now I'm, I have an internship in Houston in the oil and gas industry. So in, um, All the, you know, you can imagine how much land they keep track of. And, uh, I'm basically keeping track of all the land, the leases, the mineral rights, the property rights, stuff like that. It's pretty fun. So that's what I want to do. And how
3: did you, how did you get into that sort of stuff?
2: Well, I, I was in the Air Force and I was a geospatial intelligence analyst, which is a fancy word for someone who looks at pictures satellite pictures and high-altitude pictures, and I watched the Predator and Reaper drone video feed. So I got interested in, it's called GIS, Geographic Information Science, and satellite imagery. And so when I was getting out of the military, I wanted to find a place where I could, how the, you know, I didn't want to work for the government anymore. So I looked for where the private industry is doing that kind of stuff and the biggest thing was oil and gas so then i found texas a&m which is close to houston where the center of all that is and enrolled there and stuff like that so
0: cool i definitely want to hear more about your uh your transition out of working for the government and why and all that but that's uh okay let's, let's uh how about we just say everybody who's on the show because we got some people who run on here so i'm Dustin Rainum.
3: Colin Pearson.
0: Shaney Ediemi? Oh, that's how you say it.
2: I didn't know that's how
3: you
0: say it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one word.
1: Shaney Ediemi. <laughs> Adam said, "Tell them I have a fe. I've got a fever, and the only prescription is more theonomy." <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it looks like John lost power, so I'm assuming he needs some more power from the spirits. We need to we need to pray some Benny Hinn um, anointing on him to. Get him going again for next week. Are you
3: gonna? Are you gonna pray that God opens the floodgates of heaven and rains down fire? <laughs> <laughs> Yet. <Yeah>. because <laughs> every time, <laughs> literally, every time, man. fire. <laughs> I can't remember where I first saw the meme, but uh, there was a picture of like some church that looked like some something that was on fire. Hit it like from above, and it said uh, because Wren Collective Experiment told me to, or something like. That. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, Paul Where do you get your extraordinary sense of humor? Because I'm pretty sure at least At least 90% of the time you post a meme From Presbyterian Memes page I literally laugh out loud It's <laughs> always hilarious Literally, yes
0: They're amazing
2: <laughs> I don't know uh, I don't know <laughs> I try, sometimes, I, sometimes I try to think of something That would just make people mad <laughs> Sometimes.
1: So uh tell tell us about the brilliant uh video you posted with the uh
2: <laughs> Yeah, that was not my idea, but really who who could be the genius behind that one? Yeah, somebody somebody I don't what's that even from? It's mean... from a show
1: called Gundam Wing. Okay. It used to play on uh on Cartoon Network.
2: Okay. I watched Dragon Ball Z a little bit, but I didn't watch that show. Dragon Ball Z is OG. Yeah, I used to train in my backyard, you know, in case Frieza came down and I could fight him.
0: Nice. So you uh, obviously you 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 come up with these memes. I'm assuming you maybe some people suggest things to you every once in a while, but are they all mm-hmm. just things that you just they just come to you? You see a meme and you think of a a good uh, yeah Presby version of a, it.
2: A lot of times. I try to think of a sarcastic way to make a theological point that I think is an important point to make that you don't see often, like on other meme pages, for instance, or um, listening to sermons, you get ideas. And eventually, it's kind of weird now, every time I see something, I think, how could that be into made into a meme? It's kind of a...
0: <laughs> takes over your life, everything kind you Kind of see. a
2: weird thought process, but... <laughs> yeah, we get submissions from people, and my wife actually has made a lot of them, or it was her idea at least, so she's got a good sense of humor. So is she really the
3: brains behind the operation, or...? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's she's made some, some of them, so... What,
0: uh, what did you do for your creative outlet before this, then? Oh, man. Because I, I can just tell this is just pent up inside your head, needs to come out.
2: Yeah. I don't know. In the military sense of humor was easy to do without getting in trouble. So after I got out of the military, I didn't have a way of expressing that. So then I, I don't know. I feel like the memes kind of do that.
0: They're, they're addictive for like, seriously, you <laughs> know, once you start doing them, you're just like, I mean, I, I, yeah. I'm sure we all have probably the app on our phone to just make them. We have all our stock images saved, our custom ones. And yeah, hmm. I made one just yesterday. I have my uh, sister's boyfriend. Is he farms and he's got some animals that he's selling. He's got a pig, and it's just it's like just I don't you don't even think about it. It's just they they just come to you when someone's talking about. Oh yeah, if you want like a a, you know a fourth of a pig that you get it cut it up into like you know pork chops and this and that and bacon. And I was like, (laughs) there's like one pig left. and They're trying to divvy it up, and I wanted to be like, can I just have all the bacon? And I'm like instantly like, oh perfect. So I went and. Downloaded a picture of bacon, erased the the color behind it, so it was just bacon. Put that on top of the the little dude holding the match, and I was like, "How much for all the bacon?" You know, it's just things like that. Where you just every yeah. sentence that you speak, you're like, "That could be a meme." Quick, let me make it real quick. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad <laughs> thing, but yeah, my mind <laughs> thinks of how it could be made a meme in, in ten first. in ten
0: years. People are gonna be, look back and be like, "What?" Like they just spoke in memes. Like,
2: yeah, seriously. <laughs>
0: <laughs> have conversations just with pictures.
3: Especially on the eschatology debate group, um, because the all of the admins have such a ridiculous sense of humor, nine times out of ten any discussion turns into a comment a comment photo war. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You used to be in the
2: military, right? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, what did you do with the military?
2: Well, um, first I actually wanted to be a cop. So that's a whole nother <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if me and Colin would be friends if that ever happened. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and, uh, I actually got pretty far through in Las Vegas, the, uh, recruitment process, but I don't know. Then I changed my mind. I wanted to be in the military and, uh. Were you married at the time? No. Well, I got married like a month before I left for the military. I know the Bible says, longer period of time than that, but I didn't know that at the time, and it kind of was a bad idea, but, because it sucked being in basic training as a newlywed and not seeing your wife, you know, but, uh yeah, the recruiter just told me, oh, do you want to look at satellite photos? And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool, so, yeah, when I was doing that in the military, I liked it a lot, but um that was around a couple years into the military, I was slowly introduced to theonomy. And I actually read two of Joel McDermott's books, Restoring America, One County at a Time, and then The, uh, the Bible and War in America, that was like an expansion of the military chapter in that book. And that really kind of convicted me that I was supporting unjust wars mostly, so I felt like I needed to not stay in, so I let my contract expire, my enlistment expire, and started looking for... What I could do to get out, you know that was the motivation behind not wanting to stay in, but even before I believed like that, I didn't really plan on making a career out of it either.
0: Well, how long were you in
2: just four years
0: so did you did you talk to your you know your your the fellow men when you're out there about you know your convictions and and why you're leaving, or was that something that just kind of um let it kind of fade away and just left?
2: A little bit. I, I was pretty well known as the, the Christian guy, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes let my, my brash sense of humor be focused toward that. Like, I don't know, you know, being upfront with people about sin and the gospel and stuff, but in a, in an upfront way, but not in a flippant way either. I think some people respected me for that, but even though they didn't agree with me. And then other people really didn't like
3: me. So tell us about, um, like how, how did you come to reform theology and, and theonomy and, and other things like that? Okay. Yeah.
2: Well, um, I grew up actually like in a four square charismatic church. And then, um, my family left when I was, like 13 or so, and we went to just a regular Baptist church. So I was always raised Arminian, charismatic. Even in, in high school, I would go to just any youth group in town that was, that had cool, fun events, you know? Oh yeah. And I, uh, I played bass in like a couple rock and roll worship bands at the hip churches and stuff like that, you know? But then, um, some friends I met at this church, do you guys, do you guys remember that clip that was going around Facebook for a while of those two pastors that were gonna like nail the final nail in the coffin of Calvinism and they were showing pictures of babies saying Calvinists believe babies go to hell and all this stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. In yeah the, Bakersfield or something. Yeah, they're, yeah. So they had a sister church in Las Vegas and that's where I went. Oh wow. Mm. Um, yeah. So, and actually, it, you could tell that Calvinism was not liked there. Mm. So a couple people like were kind of pushed out because of that. A lot actually Paul Washer videos started circling around in the college group at that church. And so that kind of piqued my interest because it seemed like genuine theology that I always looked for, but could hardly find in circles like that. So, um, it was kind of like a mass group of us were introduced to you know, the five points of Calvinism all at the same time. So we, a bunch of us became Calvinists and left that church. And then, um, one of my friends found a reformed Baptist church in town and he said, dude, I found a Calvinist church in town. I'm like, yeah, right. There's no such thing. (laughs) I didn't think that that was, that they were really, I thought that was just an obscure doctrine that not many people held to, you know? So I was a reformed Baptist for a while. And then um you know, just growing in in theologically reading things and you know, I listened to Mark Driscoll and people like that at first and then started listening more to more legit people like R. C. Sproul and and stuff like that, and the more I learned and read, the more I started I was like, okay, there's another option, you can be a Pato Baptist. <laughs> wonder what that's all about. So I was reading about that and just studying Covenant theology and when my wife got pregnant it was when I really started to think about it more seriously because you know when you're a single person it it doesn't impact you as much as if you have kids. Right. Even though it's even though it's important you know, either way. But uh Yeah, so it took me a while of studying it, just going back and forth on it and then I finally became convinced of covenant baptism. So we had our, our son baptized when he was about a year and a half old. So it took me nine months plus a year and a half before I finally nailed it down. And then we, we were going to a 1689 Reformed Baptist church in Hawaii, where I was stationed in the air force and the, the pastors worked with me to find an OPC pastor in town who agreed to baptize my son. And so we got him baptized, and then shortly after that, I moved. So then, when I moved here to Texas, I joined a PCA here. So that's a general background of my walk. You know, raised Christian. I never did all the drugs, or don't have a huge conversion story. You know, but
3: so you were saved from a life of drugs and alcohol at an early age. <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: So uh, where was your wife in all of this? Like, did she have similar Christian background? Did she, you know, as you kind of learned things, did she just kind of agree and kind of go along with it? Or was there any pushback?
2: Yeah, well, when I met her, she was an independent fundamentalist Baptist KJV onlyist. Hmm. (laughs) armenian and uh did you go to steve anderson's church (laughs) (laughs) basically like that is how she grew up i don't know she she was kind of burned by that church when i met her i you know we when we were dating we went to bible studies and stuff like that and i was talking to her about calvinism and i think she thought i was crazy at first for a while but uh I basically missionary dated her into being a Calvinist. So <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that approach, but it worked in God's providence. So
0: and Doug Wilson says that uh, um, it's, a, I think it was an, on an Ask Doug saying, is it okay to, for a, a Presbyterian to date a Baptist or something? And he said, well, I wouldn't recommend it, but it, it would be better for a Presbyterian guy to. Date a Baptist girl than the other way around. <laughs> so he's he doesn't, he doesn't recommend the Baptist women or the the Reformed women to date the the Baptist men.
3: <laughs> so so you, did, you, yeah. you didn't do you didn't do all that. shots fired shots fired <laughs> yeah. poor John poor John.
0: <laughs> cool that's cool. So she uh, but she, so she kind of kind is it like should she follow her lead? Cause that's how it is. Like with my wife where. I do, she's not yeah. as interested in like, you know, reading theological books and things. So it's more, hey, this is kind of what I believe now. Let's talk through it. And usually it's like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I introduced her to Calvinism. And then, you know, after we were married, when I was looking into covenant theology and paedobaptism, baptism she kind of just trusted me to learn about it and make the right decision. She didn't, you know, and... She went along with it pretty easily, so. But then, one thing though, she, she actually convinced me of head coverings. She, uh, she studied that issue herself because she just felt like it's something as a woman she should look into. And so she did, and then, at first I was just cool with her doing what she felt convicted to do, but then after talking with her a little bit and reading about it myself, I she pretty much convinced me of it. So that was pretty cool that it worked the other way around for that, you know?
0: That's cool. I definitely get challenged too from my wife sometimes on things where she's like, remember, remember so and so mentioned that one, you know, like that whatever, some specific doctrine, you know, we were, we were kind of looking into it. Like, I really think we should look into that more, you know? I was like, oh, yeah, I know, we should.
2: She's also, she's also my filter. There's a lot <laughs> of stuff that I would say or do. That would not be good. <laughs> that she stops me from doing so.
0: I'm I'm an ENTP, so I'm a I'm a debater. So if if I were yeah. as many Facebook groups I'm in right now, if I were not married, yeah, it would be bad. <laughs> yeah, it would yeah it would not be good. I pro, I would not be an admin of the pub if I were not married.
3: <laughs> so Shaney, do you have any questions for Paul? You've been rather quiet. Paul, were you the one that made that? <laughs> oh, the, the, uh, you Paul Blart. You
2: know what Blart. I'm talking
3: about.
1: <laughs> the Paul Blart, uh, <laughs> meme? No, I didn't make that. Uh, that was awesome.
0: That was, that was Nick.
3: <laughs> that was pretty awesome. Oh, Nick.
0: <laughs> yeah, so he made a meme that was, uh, from the Paul. I, I'm gonna get it. Is it Blarth? Is the Paul, movie?
2: Paul Blart, Mall Cop. The, ma- <laughs>
0: yeah, the, ma- the Mall Cop. So they mm-hmm. put Paul's face on it and called it the Presby Cop. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty awesome.
2: I was, yeah. I'm like driving home, and I'm like, "Why is my phone blowing up right now?" <laughs> 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 oh, that was so good. I think,
0: I think in the in the description for this episode on our website, I sh- we should uh we should put like the top five top five Presbyterian memes, and we'll put links to them in the description. I think Sweet. that'd be good. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Cool. And, and also, for those who don't know, we uh, Presbyterian Memes has a Twitter account. And there's a ton of people on there that, uh, are loving all the posts. So if, if you're mm-hmm. not as active on Facebook and you are on Twitter, I think it's just Presby memes, P-R-E-S-B-Y memes. So you're taking over, you're taking over the internets here. Now, there are there a lot of other, re- uh, reformed or Calvinistic, uh, meme Facebook? They're usually just Facebook pages, right?
2: Yeah, usually, I think. I know of a couple, but they're not as funny, so. Shots fired. (laughs) (laughs) Take take that, Matthew Wilkins.
3: (laughs) Oh.
1: (laughs) Which one does he do? Reform memes daily. Okay.
2: Oh, okay.
3: (laughs) That page is pretty old, and near the beginning they had a lot of funny stuff, and I think he—I think they're sort of you know running low on content, but
1: they've actually reposted a lot of my personal memes from my page without giving credit. Also, man. Uh oh.
0: Matthew Wilkins. Uh oh. (laughs) We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to call someone's pastor here.
2: Shaney, you gotta, if they're good, you gotta feed them to me, man.
0: Paul, how many, how many do you have, uh, saved up waiting to be posted? Or are you doing them daily?
2: Oh, man. Yeah, I've got, I just have a folder with, I don't even, I don't even know. I haven't checked in a while. Let me check. Probably like 500 or so. Yeah. Some, and then I have a folder of, uh, templates, I just call it, where it's a picture that I thought was funny that I want to figure out something for. So I have a lot of ideas that I haven't done anything with yet. And then I have like a a note thing on my phone of
3: ideas that I get. So pretty much if you're one a day, you got at least a year and a half ahead of you. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think so. How many do you
0: post every day?
2: I just post one. And then on Lord's Days, I put, I try to post something. That's just like a good theological quote, but not necessarily funny or
0: no, no snark on the Lord's Day.
2: Yeah, but those are those are actually well, they're not too hard to come across. I mostly those I repost that other people make. I've only made a few of those. So you're good at being funny but not being serious. Yeah, pretty much. But no, yeah. If anyone wants to send me a good Presbyterian quote for those, I'll make it.
0: So how many do you think you make a day?
2: Well, I don't. I, sometimes I have spurts where I'll make 10 and then I won't make any. Did you, uh, so
0: this is, I'm coming from a digital marketer. I'm thinking about like strategy and everything. So when you, when you come up with like a really good one that's relevant, will you bump that one up in the queue to get it out right away or?
2: Yeah. Or if I think that Reform Memes (laughs) Daily is going to (laughs) post (laughs) it. You,
0: you, I remember you were real quick with the, with, when the Star Wars trailer came out, the Chewie were home. Oh, yeah. Did, did you beat him or was it pretty close <laughs> yeah. or?
2: Yeah, no, I was like, what was it? I watched the trailer, you know, and I was just like, how, what memes can I make off this? Cause I know it's gonna be huge, you know? So I just made the first thing that came to my, my mind and posted it half an hour later. So, and then I, I did that for Batman too, but nobody cares about Batman. That one so. was still
3: pretty funny though. It was pretty
0: funny. <laughs> what was the, was that the, are you the that Boltzmann one?
3: No, no, it was, do you baptize babies? you will that's right yeah <laughs>
1: what was the uh what was the star wars one
2: it was uh when chewie and han walk into the millennium falcon and he says chewie we're home so i just put when you walk into church on the lord's day chewie we're home <laughs> the uh i think the
1: the brian williams memes were the best
3: there were so many of them but every, every single <laughs> one
2: <laughs>
0: seriously so good
2: I was just thinking, any biblical or theological (laughs) event that I could put him (laughs) in, obviously, that didn't have an image of Jesus in it, you know, but... So there we were, standing before Pharaoh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in the lion's den, or reporting live from Noah's flood, you know? I found a picture of him in a a raincoat.
0: Yeah, What, what was the... Was it the lion's den where he was, like, referencing the lions, like, biting him or almost biting or something that was... And then a a lion almost bit me? Yeah, something like that. Just, oh my gosh, I cracked up. Yeah. (laughs) There I
2: was. Oh man, so good. Yeah. And then just him walking out of the parting of the Red Sea with no words, (laughs) just him walking out of there. That's good.
0: And then, so, did you come up with the original um, evolution of the Reformation or did did you just start tweaking it, or
2: some some Baptist came up with that and they put you know Roman Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, Reformed Baptist, like Reformed Baptist is somehow semper reformanda, you know? So I was like, that is offensive. So I had to change it.
0: So then you put the Presbyterian in front of him with a a beer and a pipe.
2: No, he took Reformed Baptist out of the lineup. <laughs> yeah. I just <laughs> I just took him completely out.
3: <laughs> Anabaptist dodo bird.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was actually not my idea though. Dodo bird part that you guys know Michael Daniels. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was his idea. <laughs> That's <a good> one. <laughs> yeah. That's perfect. And then someone commented on how he was still naked, so I had to draw a suit on him.
0: Did you draw that then, or do you do like Photoshop work yourself? Or
2: yeah, I use GIMP. So. Paul, is it true that you're a Covenanter? I might not fit 100% into that, but in a way I'd call myself one, yeah.
0: Because you know Shaney is the first ever Baptist Covenanter, right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's just a joke that we make because he hasn't come out and said that he's a Presbyterian yet. But I'm pretty sure that he's working on his 50-page refutation of, of everything that his elder, <laughs> Dr. James White, has ever written on the subject. Oh yes,
0: <laughs> that's going to take a lot of work. <laughs>
3: He just
2: and Shaney, muted and walked away. Yeah, he just <laughs> muted and stepped out of the room. <laughs> He's
0: like, "I'm out of here. I can't handle this."
2: Plausible deniability. <laughs>
0: yes.
3: Like, exactly. I'm sorry, you guys. What were you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I missed
0: that. I can't imagine what it would be like to have to have James White as an, an elder pastor. That would be, uh, especially if you disagreed with him theologically. I mean, what do you? Hey, you want want to go for coffee and and chat about you know baptism? I mean,
3: I won't tell the story because I don't think that, I don't know if Shani would want me to tell the story, but something similar to that actually happened. So how did you, how did you come to those conclusions? Because you started, you started with Theonomy by reading Joel McDermott.
2: So yeah. you were introduced to it through uh, Christian Reconstruction. Yeah. Well, I remember the, there is just one group just on Facebook, Theonomists, I think that Pittman runs. And uh, there is a. Big debate in there between Covenanters and Reconstructionists, and I didn't know what either one of those things were at the time. But I was just reading the debates, and I was like, wow, this is an interesting debate, you know. I agreed with the Reconstructionists more, but I liked that the Covenanters had a lot of history behind what they were saying. So then they both split up and started their own Facebook groups. So now you have three Theonomy groups. Yeah. So I joined all three. <laughs> and was just, you know, reading and following along and any books or resources or sermons that they posted, I would listen. Yeah, I th- I just slowly started. The more I learned, the more I realized that I agreed with the Covenanter side of things more, not just in terms of theonomy, but also in terms of confessionalism and theology proper too, which I know there's a wide variety of reconstructionists so there's there's some confessional guys you know
0: so what uh why don't we start with what what are the main differences between covenant covenanter and Christian reconstruction okay or it may even start just uh, throw some names out who are some famous people that are on on either side
3: so the big the the big name Christian reconstructionist I think the movement sort of started with In a sense, Van Til, he wasn't a Reconstructionist, but his philosophy laid the groundwork for what later developed into Reconstructionism. Um, uh, Rush Dooney was the first one, his Institutes of Biblical Law. And then after him, Gary North and Greg Bonson um, are are the other two really big names. And there's a handful now out there, like um, Gary DeMar and um, Joel McDermott. And I'm trying to think if there's other big names out there still today. Gary North is still writing, so those are the. Joe big names. Moorcraft. That's right, Joe Moorcraft. and he's uh, Joe Moorcraft is another. He tends to be sort of run run kind of the the line a little bit because he's a little
2: bit more confessional. Yeah. His his denomination was one of the first to say something against federal vision too. I think so. What was his denomination? RPCUS, I think maybe. I could be wrong. Okay. Don't quote me on that, but yeah, I, I think they were one of the—they're definitely the first people in the Reconstructionist camps to ever say anything against federal vision.
3: So, John Weaver—is he Reconstructionist too, or is he?
2: I would call him one. He's a Baptist, but I would—I would classify him as Reconstructionist. He's—he's he's got some pretty good sermons.
3: Yeah, Joe Moorcraft's, Joe Moorcraft's sermon series on Deuteronomy is really good, actually. I just listened through that. It was pretty good. So. So you were, you were gonna say about Covenanters.
2: Yeah, so Carlos wrote an article on my blog with seven differences between Covenanters and Reconstructionists. And it's pretty good. It, it outlines the main, the main differences, even though there's variations within both camps, but um, the seven points he put are, are national covenanting is the first one. I guess I can briefly describe what each of them are as I go through. National covenanting is, is basically where after the gospel goes forth in a nation, the nation as a whole repents. They swear, they basically swear a covenant to God to be a Christian nation and that they'll follow God's laws. And that kind of leads into the second point, which is the establishment principle. And that's those national covenanting and the establishment principle kind of go hand in hand. Covenanting is more on the church side of things. And I would say establishment principles more on the state side. That's where the civil magistrate establishes the church
3: as the official religion of a country.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like under
3: Constantine or, um, Scotland, but the, was it with the
2: Solemn League and Covenant? Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Solemn League and Covenant. The Solemn League and Covenant was Scotland, Ireland, and England. The the National Covenant was Scotland's covenant before that, that the Solemn League and Covenant was kind of based on. But yeah, that's basically the outworking of of a revival
3: that took place so how is how is that different from reconstructionists would reconstructionists just not really talk about that at all or would they would they look at that
2: reality differently I've never I never even heard of covenanting until the covenanters talked about it you know reconstructionists would probably say that the nation should be Christian but more in a general sense and they'd probably be more open to different types of Christian ecumenical. Groups and denominations. Yeah, they'd be more ecumenical. I'm going to probably equate a lot of stuff back to the 1640s in England, just because I think that's a good reference. So, like, the Covenanters were the Scottish people who wanted to establish the Presbyterian Church as the Church of the United Kingdom. Then when Cromwell took over, he was more like a Reconstructionist, I would say, he was an independent, so he didn't believe in Presbyterian church government. He believed in congregationalism. Yeah, congregationalism. And he was a little more lenient. Like, as long as you were an Orthodox Christian, you were okay. He, he did not approve of Roman Catholics or straight up heretics, though. So he wasn't, some people might go f- further. Left than even Cromwell on that point. So Cromwell
3: was establishmentarian, but not specific Presbyterian Church government. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know too much. I'm not gonna pretend to be an expert, but I listened to a couple sermon series about the history of that time. It's it's pretty complex. There's a lot of different things going on. So there's lots of different reasons why people did what they did too.
3: Okay, so national covenanting and establishmentarianism. And am I correct in saying that establishmentarianism is the confession, the original confessional position? Is that right?
2: Yeah. 1646 confession establishes the, yeah, the church as the national church. But then in 1788, they took that out in America. Went with the Constitution, right? Yeah, 1788, that was a year before the United States Constitution. So, the, so the
3: 1788 revision changed the establishmentarianism in the confession. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Okay. Yeah.
2: So, what's the next uh, What's the next point? So, the next one Carlos has is enforcement of both tables of the law. So, Covenanters would say that idolatry, blasphemy, heresy, Sabbath breaking—those are all enforceable by the civil magistrate. Some Reconstructionists would differ on some of those, but the consistent theme is that at least somewhere in the first table they would differ on how harsh it should be enforced so like a lot of reconstructionists don't agree with images of Christ being being breaking, being an idol or they wouldn't agree with enforcing the sabbath mostly idolatry and heresy they would probably agree with enforcing that yeah, I think, and I think the difference too comes from,
3: uh, from Rush Dooney himself, because Rush Dooney, uh, was not a, he was not a Stabatarian in the, sa- in the confessional sense. I'm not sure where he stood on images of Christ, but I can't remember which book it was of Bonson, but one of Bonson's books had an image of Christ on the front cover, and so it was like, whoa, okay, that's weird. So, I'm not sure if that was just, uh, an oversight or, uh, ignorance, or I'm not sure what it was, but, so I think so. I think that's where that comes from.
2: Yeah, and then there's some people today who are Reconstructionists, but they, I don't know, they're even less confessional than Rush Dooney and North are. So, like, they kind of totally redefine what Sabbath means. They make it, like, some libertarian economic concept instead of a, I don't know, spiritual concept.
3: <laughs> I remember reading North criticizing what he considered... Strict Sabbatarianism, which, as as far as I'm aware, is just
2: Sabbatarianism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's they try to redefine what it is to sound.
3: So, like, he would say that he believes that that Sunday, the first day of the week, is the Lord's Day, the day that we go to church, etc. But when it comes to the conf- the confession says to cease worldly employment and recreation or something to that effect. And it, he would differ on that and say that, well, it's fine to work as long as you're still making it to church or something, and then with as far as recreation. And uh, he his argument was something about, like, he said something to the effect that you, you can't be consistent unless you shut off the lights or something like that. I, I don't remember the exact argument, but something to that effect.
0: I mean, you always get people who say, well, you know, you can't go out to eat because you're, you're helping other people sin. Yeah. But then th- the people take it further and say, well, then you can't use electricity. You can't use anything that, you know, that, that mm-hmm. has to be supported by, by other people. So what, what, what do you guys have to say about that? Like, wh- wh- where do you draw the line?
2: Well, in the confession, it just says that, um, works of mercy and necessity are, acceptable on the sabbath and that's directly from all of jesus's interactions with the pharisees about the sabbath they took it to a very strict above the law kind of way like they would have bizarre things like you can only travel a certain distance from your house so to get around that they would take like some pots and pans and leave them on the road so that they would be certain distance from those possessions of theirs and it would be okay somehow and just weird things like that. And like,
3: but. and like Jesus and his disciples who were essentially homeless were grabbing some grains from the corner of somebody's field, which was standard practice for uh, contributing to the poor. And they said, you know, you're, well, because you're, because you're grinding, getting, because you're getting the, the grains out of the husks or whatever, that's work and you can't do that. But it's an act of necessity because you need to eat. So we would say
0: culturally, because of our society, we need electricity to cook food and have air conditioning and stuff like that.
3: Yeah, and it's an act of mer- it's an act of mercy too. Like if you're if you're having people over to your house in the afternoon, it's an act of mercy to make them a meal, and you can't really do that without electricity for the most part. And the same thing with like, I mean, hospitals. If somebody gets seriously injured and has to go to the hospital, hospital can't run its equipment without electricity. So a doctor working on Sunday or a nurse or something.
2: Yeah, not, probably not in every situation, you know, like having some office open or something, but definitely, you know, in emergency rooms or.
0: To plastic surgeons, so shouldn't be working on Sunday.
2: Yeah, stuff like that. But, um. But I really need my nose job, Paul.
0: Cool. Next point.
2: We went over national covenanting establishment principle, enforcement of both tables, and then the regulative principle of worship. That kind of fits into the last point. Covenanters are a strict regulative principle, which that's kind of a... There's no need to put the word strict in front of regulative principle, because... It's either regulative or normative. There's no middle ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But a lot of people have redefined what that means, too. They'll say, John Frame's the biggest guy that's redefined what regulative principle of worship is. They basically redefine it to mean normative principle. So the... The regulative principle is where you can only do what's expressly told you to do for public worship and family worship. If the Bible doesn't say whether or not you can do it, that means you can't do it. And then the normative principle is that the, basically the Bible is guidelines for worship. You can do something that's... As long as it's not forbidden. As long, yeah, as long as it's not forbidden. So where does, where does that come from in the, in the confession and in scripture? So in scripture, when Nadab and Abihu, the biggest passage is when Nadab and Abihu, they were supposed to light their their little lamps, they were supposed to light them a certain way, and it says that they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. So basically it was just that they did something that God didn't tell them to do. Not that he told them not to do it, it's that he just didn't say to do it the way that they did it, so then God killed them right there on the spot. So that's the main point where the regulative principle comes from. And being, you know, Presbyterian and covenantal, we don't believe that the New Testament has different standards for worship, even if the elements of worship were explicitly changed by the New Testament. But the principle of the regulative principle doesn't change. So how would that differ from, um, from the less confessional Reconstructionists? Well, things like exclusive psalmody and no instruments and not practicing holidays that aren't in the Bible, they wouldn't have a problem with any of those things, with singing modern hymns or songs and using instruments or with celebrating Christmas or Easter, for example. But the Covenanters would take... And there's there's in-depth arguments for each of these things that are very convincing, even though it sounds very bizarre, the fr- I remember the first time I ever heard that Christmas was bad. I thought that was insane. You're like, we're celebrating Jesus' birth. Why is that Why is that bad? Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out what I think about that and how I'm going to run my family according to that. So I'm definitely not the best person to advance that type of position.
0: As far as the, the worship goes, um, or during a service in music, is exclusive psalmody that part of? The regulative principle, or is there? Do some people are some people regulative principle without exclusive psalmody?
2: They say they are, but <laughs> they're not.
0: So it is it that they're together, right?
2: Yeah, because there's the Bible tells you to sing psalms, but it doesn't tell you to sing that you can write your own songs. So in order
3: for in order for non-exclusive psalmody to be regulative, there's a has to be a command for man-made songs. Yeah, exactly. Or instrumental accompaniment.
2: Mm-hmm. And the instruments were part of the Old Testament temple worship, which was abrogated in Christ in the ceremonial law. So there's no reason to have those, and there's no explicit command to have them in New Testament worship. So that's the main argument. Is that the is that the same sort of thing
3: with um, like the the song of Moses and other Old Testament songs that weren't in the Psalter? yeah that those are were they extraordinary circumstance sort of
2: yeah it was it was just like a a one time thing it wasn't meant to be you know they weren't included in the Psalter by the Holy Spirit, they were obviously inspired songs because it's written in the Bible, but it wasn't it it was meant to be sang at that time, not meant to be sang at all times,
1: yeah, singing actually wasn't. Uh, implemented in Israel's worship until the time of David. Um, I, I forget the reference, but somewhere in, uh, I believe it's in Chronicles, he actually institutes singing and uh, instrument playing and all that stuff. And basically, the, the whole order, order of worship has changed, um, quite drastically from what it was in the time of Moses. What was the purpose
0: of that change? Does it say?
1: Um, well, it I, I believe it had something to, I believe it had to do with um you know moving away from the tabernacle into the temple, um, preparing for the, to the yeah preparing for the temple.
2: I'm I'm fairly new to regulative principles, so I'm definitely not the best person to ask about these types of things. I'm still learning myself. I I agree with exclusive solemnity, but I am definitely not. I definitely couldn't debate someone about it. Like at my church, we will sing like one psalm or two, maybe. And those are the only ones I sing. <laughs> but we have, uh, we have the 1650 Psalter at home that we sing for family worship. And my, my kids love it. Do
0: you stay sitting down then when they sing other songs or do you still stand just to try to not differentiate yourself too much or?
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I stand just cause I'm not like protesting. So I'm not going to sit, you know but I'm not participating either.
3: What's the title of the 1650?
2: The Psalms of David
0: in meter. Okay. Yeah. We'll put links. We'll put a link to that in our description for people.
2: There, There's a good, there's an entire website that some of one of our mutual friends made, but it's all about the 1650 Psalter and the translation. It's actually more accurate than the King James version. Oh, that's fascinating.
3: Even though it's in meter.
0: Yeah. What's what's that website, Shani? Is that the one that you shared with me the other day? Uh, I don't I don't think so.
3: We'll have to look that up and figure
1: out who it is. It's, I think it's like this 1650 Salter or something like that.
2: Yeah, 1650salter dot com. It's got all sorts of information on there. There's there's some other articles and stuff like that I can dig up that talk about the how it was translated and the history of it. I think the Westminster Assembly had something to do with it. Or maybe it was the Scottish General Assembly.
0: Oh, real quick, I was gonna, I was I was gonna I had a, a wrong question. I'm sure you've everyone anyone who has, I mean, you're not a huge you know studied up on this on the regular principle, but what I'm sure you've heard people say the Colossians three sixteen. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hings, and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Guarantee there's a, a, a easy response to that, right? What do what you guys usually say when people say that to you?
2: Yeah. They think it means Psalms as in the Psalms and then hymns as in Isaac Watts hymns and then spiritual songs as in Chris Tomlin. <laughs> but clearly that's not the <laughs> original meaning. Right. And then it's also funny because the same people who say that they don't sing 33% Psalms. They sing zero Psalms. <laughs> exactly. So that just annoys me. But, um, In the original language, those refer to the types of songs that are in the Psalter. They're not talking about uninspired songs that would be written, you know, in the 1700s or whatever. So So
0: Psalms, hymns, songs of the spirit, kind of like all describing the same thing, just different types of them or something, but they're all Mm -hmm. referring to the same thing.
3: Let me put it in my words and you can kind of clarify if I'm, if I misunderstand, um, we think of the book of Psalms as being titled Psalms, but that was the Septuagint title. Whereas the Hebrew title was like songs of praise or something to that effect. But the, but the, um, the terms used to describe the Psalter itself were Psalms, hymns, songs, and wisdom or something like that. Yeah. And those, and those terms are all used. So, individually those terms could be used to describe any song but when you use all of them together mm-hmm. it's kind of like saying commandments laws yeah. statutes or something like that. Yeah. A play a pleonasm or is that what it's called pleonasm where it's like you use use the same uh, different terms to refer to the same thing in order to be redundant just to clarify or something to that effect.
2: Yeah, I don't remember the term but yeah. Yeah, R. Scott Clark has a lot of good material. Actually, I read his book, Recovering the Reformed Confession, and that one of my RPCNA friends back home in Las Vegas gave me. That was pretty convincing. Actually, in that book, he argued for just singing Scripture, not just the Psalms. But then I heard that he changed his position after he wrote that book, and now he's exclusive song.
3: That's fascinating. Yeah. Is he URC? Yeah, he's... Continental reformed. Okay. That's what I, th- I thought he was. I thought he's has Heidelblog, I think is his Yep. So he's, yeah. so he's original and that's the fascinating thing about that. Um, so, so the Heidel, the Heidelberg catechism, Belgic confession mm-hmm. and sign of Dort or canons of Dort was, yep. that's the, what they call the three forms of unity, which is the continental reformed, also known as Dutch reformed or German reformed, depending on who you're talking to. Um, that's just another reformed tradition other than the westminster confession so it's a little bit earlier the westminster confession is a little more specific in certain areas but i i have a friend i didn't realize this i have a friend who's like in holland who goes to a traditional dutch reformed church in holland and they are like head coverings sing only psalms like you would think yeah. that they were presbyterian you would think they were presbyterian because of like all of their their practices. And I was talking to this guy from the church and he just goes to the church because it's the only reformed church in town. And he's asking me about exclusive psalmody because his church practices it. And I'm like, my church doesn't practice it. I have no idea. So it's it's interesting that that was a, that that was actually a continental tradition.
2: Yeah. Actually the uh, Scottish and, you know, the, the UK reformed people used the, Three forms of unity before they wrote the Westminster standards. Right, so they agreed with them as well. Yeah, and a lot of them were at the Synod of Dort too, which was, that was actually the biggest, the largest reformed council in the history of ever. And that's where they, you know, declared Arminianism a heresy, and that's where the five points of Calvinism come from. So if you read the canons of Dort, there's five points, and they're the five points of Calvinism.
3: Cool. All right, next point.
2: So, yeah, he he basically just says generally Covenanters are Historicist post-Millennials, and then Reconstructionists are usually partial Preterist post-Millennial. And that, again, these are just very general. There's going to be differences within each camp, you know? Yeah, I'm in the middle because
3: I'm Idealist, so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to briefly just
0: describe anyone, just real quickly, with the difference between those three?
3: So a partial preterist would would look at the um, Book of Revelation. Uh, this would be like Gary DeMar's position, Kenneth Gentry's position, uh, Greg Bonson's position to, to one extent or another. Would look at the Book of Revelation and say that the majority of the events in the Book of Revelation from essentially chapters 4 to 19 have already occurred. Um, either in the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem or in some sense also, like Bonson would take uh, an, a little bit older view and say that some of the events in Revelation also pertain to the fall of Rome. In, in a general sense, you look at the events in Revelation um, and in New Testament prophecy as having already occurred in the past, and that's what preterist means.
1: A historicist eschatology is going to see the book of Revelation as uh, prophesying particular historical events spanning throughout the entire inter-advental period, basically. Um I'm not an expert on the Be- Book of Revelation by any means, especially not from this understanding, but that's the general sense of it. So the same way that uh, Jonathan Edwards explains in um, A History of the Work of Redemption, that um, from Adam to Christ, we have... You know, all of, all of that history covered either by divinely inspired, um, history, uh, or by prophecy. Um, so what's not, uh, covered by, um, history, you know, by, you know, chronicles and kings and so on. We have it, the major events foretold, um, in pro, in the prophecies of Daniel, uh, mostly and, um, also, uh, Ezekiel and the other pro- prophets as well. Um, and then we have it complemented by pro, pro, uh, profane historians, non-inspired historians that we can fill in the, that we can see the fulfillments. Um, so basically, uh, historicists is going to see the book of Revelation as doing the same thing as Daniel, as filling, filling in the gaps, um, from what we have covered it, in divinely inspired history in the Gospels and in Acts. Um, and then the rest we have covered, uh, in prophecy in the book of Revelation.
3: So then, so then the book of Revelation would be, in, in some sense, a timeline of major historical events concerning the church from the first to the second advent. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think the biggest difference between preterists and historicists would be that preterists would say we're already in the millennium, the millennium is the entire inner advent period, the progress of the gospel continues, versus Historicists would say the millennium is the future era of peace following the following the destruction of Islam and the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Well, I'm kind of somewhere in between. I agree with the historicists that Revelation is speaking of events from the first to second advent, but I just see parallels within the book itself that point to more recapitulations than a historicist. So some historicists, I think, see recapitulation around Revelation chapter 12. Um, some don't. I see like seven recapitulations. And the only reason for that is just like, like, not, like there's nothing in the text that says, and now we're going to go back to the beginning and start over again. But I think that there are textual clues that that's actually what's happening. So. Not not a major disagreement, but because then you see the visions are spanning larger periods of time, then the events are less specific is really the biggest difference. I actually tend to agree with historicists on a lot of things. I was reading some from some uh, Owen and I was like, Yeah, preach it, brother. So
2: <laughs> Alright, so the next one is two kingdom theology. The Covenanters believe in two kingdoms usually, and the Reconstructionists are more along the lines of Abraham Kuyper who sort of taught there is basically one kingdom that contains everything.
3: Can you kind of flesh out what what the two-kingdom view means?
2: Yeah. In the Westminster Confession, it has two kingdoms, basically the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of power. These aren't completely separate in the sense that there's a different law ruling them. They're just different ways, kind of, you can think of it in different ways that Christ rules over different things. So the kingdom of grace is his special rule over the church. And then his kingdom of power is, that's his rule as the son of God over all providence. So every little thing that happens, everything that comes to pass, that's in Christ's kingdom of power. And he, he uses his kingdom of power to bring people into the kingdom of grace now that he's been given the nations as his heritage, basically. The kingdom of grace is the visible church, not, not the invisible church. It's, so it includes people, some people nowadays try to make it out to be that the kingdom of grace is just the invisible church and the spiritual things that go on, but it's also the visible church. So that includes elders, presbyteries, synods, um, the means of grace, the regulative
3: principle. Whereas the kingdom of power is basically
2: everything that's happening. Yeah. That's just his, his rule over providence as the eternal son of God. So, but that there's two views in the traditional reformed camp. And I wrote an article about this, but I tried to stay in the middle the whole time because I'm not sure what I think, and people that I really respect are on both sides. But regarding the kingdom of power, everyone agrees with the kingdom of grace, that it's his special rule. And so this is where you get the difference between sacred and secular. Some some people don't really, they downplay the difference between sacred and secular, and so that will kind of mess up your view of the two kingdoms. Regarding the kingdom of power, how... The dispute between, within confessional reformed theology is that whether Christ rules the kingdom of power as the eternal son of God or also as the mediator. So not, not in the sense that him as mediator, that he acts as a mediator for everything in the kingdom of power, like,
3: but that it's part of his appointed reign as opposed to his reign by nature of being God. Or am I not understanding that?
2: Yeah, I I don't. I'm not going to claim that I am an expert either. A lot of the older writers, like Gillespie and Rutherford and the Westminster Divines, were hesitant to speak of Christ's mediatorial reign as being over the kingdom of power. They thought he was only his mediatorial reign was only over the church, and the reason that they were hesitant to say that was because they were battling. Erastianism at that time. And Erastianism is the view that the state can control the church. And so if you believe that Christ's mediatorial reign is over his kingdom of power, the magistrate, the civil magistrate is also in the kingdom of power. He's not part of the church, um, as an office, even though he may be a Christian and a member of the church. So the Erastians wanted to make, Christ as mediator over the kingdom of power so that that would mean that they, you know, they would kind of twist it to mean that he, uh, by his kingdom of power
3: controls the kingdom of grace instead of runs alongside or I don't know, I'm trying to put it in my own words
2: because they wanted to try to find some way of be like the divine right of Kings. They were trying to, ah. they were trying to defend that and they were trying to defend the idea that the King could rule over the church and tell the church what to do. And that's clearly not scriptural and the reformers, you know, fought and died against that. So while establishmentarianism
3: would say that there is an official religion, the institution of the church
2: is jurisdictionally still separate from the state. Yes, yes, exactly. So it's it's kind of a fine distinction, especially if you're not familiar with it. Like the confession says that that the civil magistrate can, like, call synods and, and councils, but he can't, he's not the one that makes judgments at them. He doesn't hold the keys of the kingdom. Yeah, exactly. Got it. So, it, the confession's very careful to say that he may not assume to himself the administration of the word or sacraments or the power of the keys to the kingdom of heaven, but it's still his authority and his duty to make sure that unity and peace is preserved in the church. That the truth of God be kept pure and entire; that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, and all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled and ministered and observed.
3: So, it's not exactly that the state is controlling the church, but that the state is enforcing what the church has been established as. So, the yeah. so the church kind of has decided at this point in time. What is proper worship and improper worship in the state assists the church in maintaining that, as opposed to telling them what to do?
2: Yeah. And then even if the church went astray and was teaching heresy, he could come in and punish them for that. Um, it's kind of a checks and balance thing. Even if the church is apostate, he can, he still has a power to punish that. So then, then the newer, the newer confessional reformed guys like William Symington and the 17 and 1800s guys, um, they they had no problem saying that the mediatorial dominion of Christ was over the kingdom of power. And that by that, they weren't trying to say that, you know, such as Christ's power over demons, like Satan has to, in Job, ask permission from God to do anything. That doesn't mean that he's a mediator to the demons and saves them, you know? It just means that he's in control. Yeah. Okay. So they, it, it's it's very nuanced, and I'm definitely not an expert on it. But there is a slight difference of sometimes it seems semantic, like they're saying the same thing, but they're just, just using words. trying to be careful yeah. not to let people at the time that they're fighting against to have any ground.
3: Whereas whereas Abraham Kuyper, so compared to uh, in contrast to the two kingdom model. Abraham Kuyper said, "No, it's all one reign of Christ. There's no distinction between how he rules the church and how he rules everything else."
2: Yeah, so he would emphasize, like, you know, whether you eat or drink and everything you do, glorify God.
3: So he would look at that and say, "Regulative principle doesn't work because it's a like." Would he see that as a change or?
2: Yeah, I think I think this definitely affects your view of. So all these seven things affect each other, they feed back on each other and definitely to kingdom theology you can see how that would affect the regulative principle. The regulative principle
3: applies to worship not worldly employ recreation. Yes, exactly.
2: Okay. The the office of the civil magistrate for example, that's that's built into natural law, just the the created order that God made uh, with families when multiple families get together and form societies Naturally, you're going to have to have people with hierarchy and authority over groups of people. When you say natural law, the
3: former uninformed theonomist in me would say, "But God's law is better than natural law, or something." What? What is? What is? When you say natural law, what are you talking about?
2: So that same with me, I I kind of never liked that word, but that's because people have completely destroyed it, the concept in our day, but. Natural law is no different than biblical law than God's law written in scripture. Natural law is the the character of God written in creation and on man's heart, and it's also what's called the secondary laws of nature, which is what is right because of the way God chose to make the world so not by not by his character itself
3: but by consequence of how he's created,
2: yeah, exactly, okay. So, and that would be where civil government comes from. It's not like... There wouldn't be a need for civil government
3: necessarily if there had been no fall, but because there was a fall and he decreed the fall, therefore we need punishment of evil, et
2: cetera. There would still be hierarchy, you know? Yeah. Adam was still yeah. a head over his wife. But uh, as, so far as, sense, as far as
3: the need for using the sword to punish wickedness...
2: Yeah. Yeah, there would be no need for punishing sin at all, but there'd still be hierarchy in creation. So natural law would be like Romans 1,
3: where although they knew God, they refused to honor him. So this is like what's natural, it's intuitive to human beings, what is right and wrong, but we refuse to do it anyway. Yeah,
2: we suppress it. So just a lot of times people argue that you've no idea what natural law is, and in a sense they're right because we suppress the truth, you know. But then Romans 2 says that, The Gentiles do
3: by nature what is according to the law. They are a law to themselves. So everyone's
2: got a conscience that God put in them so they know God's requirements and they know that the punishment for breaking it is hell. So when it says they have no excuse, it literally
3: means they can't say I didn't know.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: How how does that concept make Covenanter theonomy different from Reconstructionist theonomy? What's
2: the main difference in that regard? It's hard to make a blanket statement just because there's a lot of there could be a lot of different people who hold the different nuances of things but just to make a general statement it seems like reconstructionists believe that there has to be some some case law explicitly in scripture about something or else the magistrate can't do it at all and covenanters would say that there's something called proper law which is So I wrote two blogs on proper law, which is basically the civil law. There's actually three types of civil laws. There's some that are inherently moral, and then there's some that are kind of a mix of general equity, which means that it's inherently moral and it's general for all people, not just particular to Israel. So there's three. There's some that are inherently moral, some that have some moral parts to it, but that there's also parts to it that are particular to Israel. And then there's some civil laws that are only particular to Israel. And so that, that three part distinction comes from what I'm, where I learned that from is from uh Johannes Piscator's book, disputations on the judicial laws of Moses. And then also in the appendix to that, I forgot who, but like a Westminster divine or someone quoted him and elaborated on that some more. And it's in the appendix to that. Particular equity was something that was the only Israel, it was only meant for Israel to do. So like leveret marriage or the laws about the land. So like how they divided up the land of Israel for the 12 tribes, stuff like that doesn't apply to anybody but them. Those are expired. The Westminster Confession says that that's expired with the state of Israel, except for the general equity of the civil law. So things that are general equity. One way of knowing if something, Turretin has three reasons (laughs) to know if something's general equity or not. And one of the reasons Turretin gives is if pagan nations, through their understanding of natural law, ever tried to enforce something that's in the Bible.
3: If a nation completely apart from the gospel and the law of God does something that is by nature according to the law of God, then we know that that is something that's common to nations as opposed to particular to Israel.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, You know, obviously, as long as it's a righteous thing. Right, right. I wrote an entire blog about several examples from Scripture about pagan kings enforcing the first table of the law through their understanding of natural law. So they, they helped Israel rebuild the temple. They didn't allow people to blaspheme God. Um, the god of israel too not just some generic one of their pagan deities but even just the fact that every nation in the history of the world always has blasphemy and heresy concepts even if they're wrong about what but they are consists yeah yeah just the fact that they they know that that's something that should be punished the divines and reformers would see that as proof that Blasphemy and heresy should be suppressed by the magistrate. Seems bizarre to Americans, but that's how they thought. So. so so natural
3: law helps inform us as to what aspects of the Mosaic Law are common to all nations as opposed yeah. to particular to Israel.
2: Yes, exactly.
3: Okay.
2: That that was one of Turretin's points. And-,
3: and how would how would that differ from from people like Van uh, Vandrunnen and Horton and folks who are talking about two kingdoms in a way that makes it seem a little bit contrary to the theonomic
2: thesis. I have not read very much of them on two kingdoms or on natural law, but my understanding is that they would try to kind of divorce natural law from biblical law. I'm not totally sure. Actually, I have not studied them very much and. Even in my blog post about it, I didn't even address them at all because I didn't know enough. I just wanted to make a positive case for what Two Kingdoms is in the Confession.
3: From my from my understanding, just from what little interaction I've had, it seems to me that Two Kingdoms is used as a form of rhetoric against theonomy and postmillennialism. At least that's how Van drinnen presents it. Yeah. But what you're what you're telling me, it seems like you're saying that the people, the Westminster Divines when they were writing about this in the confession they didn't have any they didn't see any contention between the two kingdom natural law sort of understanding and the theonomic understanding of the civil magistrate
2: yeah exactly i do know that they believe that the the r2k position that it's slightly different they don't think of it as the kingdom of power and the kingdom of grace they think of it more as church versus state kind of okay so that's that's A completely different concept than which
3: it it seems like the way that you describe two kingdoms to me it seems like it seems like that could be an easy misunderstanding Mm -hmm. where it's like because Christ in His providence is controlling the state but in specificity ruling over the church I can see I, I I can at least see how that kind of misunderstanding
2: yeah and especially when when they read you know people like Gillespie in in his book Aaron's Rod blossoming. Where the whole time he's just arguing against Erastianism, right? And to them, that's kind of—it's easy to misread that to think I that think. it's arguing against the civil magistrate
3: being Christian. Yeah, yeah, or something. That's it. It's interesting. In particular, it's interesting because Gillespie also, in his wholesome severity, argues very strongly for the perpetuity of punishments of penology. Mm-hmm. All right. Did we uh, did we miss any of the points? Yeah, the the last one's political dissent. Ah, yes. We did talk about that a little bit a couple episodes ago.
2: So Reconstructionists would basically, they don't have a problem using the political system that we have now to bring about uh, what they consider a biblical form of government. But then Covenanters, their methods would be different. They don't agree with cooperating with the establishment that we have now because the, basically because it's a ungodly government that because the first amendment and the supremacy clause The so covenanters wouldn't vote or run for political office or join the military, but a reconstructionist wouldn't have a problem voting or running for office. Okay. That's, those are the basics of it that can get pretty nuanced too. So,
3: <laughs> okay. So, so, the so the biggest difference in that regard would be reconstructionists would say, yeah, the way that the government is now is not a good idea, but we'll fix it from the ground up. We'll work with the way that it is now and try to change it. Whereas mm-hmm. the covenanters would say no working with it would be sinful. Yeah. And and what are, are are there any books that you have read
2: that kinda helped you along understanding these different things? I liked Brian Schwartley has a book about national covenanting. Okay. That's really good. And then mostly I've been I've been buying a lot of older books from reformation heritage you know from gillespie and rutherford and uh, some other puritans that talk about church government and also how that relates to the civil government and i'm not even close to had enough time to read all that i want to read of course you know but there's also a lot of books on like DigitalPuritan.net that i've downloaded I'm writing a blog series on contraception right now, and I've been referring to William Gouge, who is a Westminster Assembly, Westminster Divine, who wrote a book of domestical duties. So I've been referring to that book a lot. There's a ton of free books online. You know, even if they're just scans of really old copies, they're still legible that I've been trying to, I've been trying to read what people thought back then in their own words instead of what modern people say think they, think, they meant. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. I've been so. doing that too, actually. Um, and for those of you who are unaware, if you find old scans and you want to convert them into something that's actually like a readable PDF, like it, like into actual text, uh, there is something called OCR software. Google Documents will do it about 10 or so pages at a time, um, or you can um, there's, you can actually purchase something that does it a little bit quicker. But it takes something that's a picture, of words like somebody took a picture of like a book page and it turns it into a text document so that you could searchable like a PDF or you can convert it into something that um that reading software will actually be able to recognize There's actually
1: an app for that for OCR It's it's called Office Lens
3: Office Lens How much is that app It's free Sweet I will look into yeah, that Yeah so actually. you
1: just take a take a picture with your phone of, of a book of a page of a book and then it lets you copy the text straight from it. It won't, it won't, I don't think it'll make it like a,
3: a PDF, but it'll let oh, you copy okay. the text. Well, h- how many pages does it do at a time? Um, it's just one. Okay. Yeah. So, see, Google docs does Google docs does the same type of thing. So if you find a, a scan of a book and you import it into Google docs, you can actually import it as where, where it actually imports it with the text reference Um, but it only will do it, but it will only do it like 10 or so pages at a time. So it'll actually download the whole book, but you can only look at the actual text like 10 pages at a time. So if you had like a 600 page book, it would take you a while to like copy, paste all of the stuff, but you would be able to do it. So I did that with like Hengstenberg's Christology of the Old Testament. Um, the first volume is the only one that I've actually converted and when you do stuff like that, you've always got the issue of it misrecognizing marks on the page as letters and stuff. Yeah. But you, it's it's easy enough to figure out when you're looking through it that, oh, that circumflex is actually not supposed to be there. That was just a mark on the page or something. But but that's the co- the cool thing that I found about old books – is that most of them are not most of them are not copyrighted anymore, so you can get find them for yep. free, so even if you can't find like it in print, you can find PDFs or something scans something of old books, which is pretty yeah. cool.
2: We've got a lot of those linked on reformtheonomy.wordpress.
3: <laughs> cool. yeah, we will definitely we're going to plug your blog majorly. One other thing that cool. Dustin actually was really he wanted us to make sure that we plug is your wife makes beard oil.
2: Oh, yeah.
3: <laughs> Explain because my yeah. beard is feeling a little dry. I don't know what <laughs> I
2: should do. <laughs> yeah, well, when I started growing a beard, I learned about beard oil that you you know, you put beard oil in it to moisturize it and keep it smelling nice and so you can style it and stuff like that, keep it from getting frizzy. I don't think I have ever purchased like an actual beard oil. She, she always had essential oils and different, you know, like almond oil and all sorts of oils around. Um, so she just researched how to make one and she made me a bottle. Well, the first scent, it was like pine and cedar wood and then another, you know, foresty smell. And it smelled really good. And so we thought, Hey, maybe we could. So she, she bought other scents and was experimenting with them and then. We thought maybe we could sell these. We're not trying to, you know, make a huge business out of it, but it's just fun, so. Cool. Do you, does she have a
3: website, or where can people yeah. get a hold of that?
2: We have a Facebook page and an Etsy page. Okay. Um, Barth Beard Oil. And Barth actually means beard in German, so <laughs> it's pretty cool. the uh, The coat of arms has a dude with a big, fat beard on it, <laughs> so...
3: <laughs> so your name literally means Paul beard.
2: Yeah. And you and you have does. a giant
3: beard on your face.
2: Yeah. <laughs> my dad, my grandpa, my uncles, they all have mustaches but not beards. So my grandpa's got a very iconic mustache. It's a handlebar wow. huge curly mustache. But to but to neglect the beard that almost
3: seems like that almost seems like Barth blasphemy. <laughs>
2: yeah. So yeah, we we started making she made it all pretty much. I just, she put it on me. So I was the You were the, the model. Yeah. Cool. So uh, we've got, how many scents? We've got three scents, I think. Gentleman is one of them. And I don't think I could even describe what they smell like. <laughs> You'd have to read the descriptions on you the website. You just smell but... dapper when you wear this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gentlemen, you you smell like James Bond, even <laughs> though I've never smelled James Bond. That's what he would smell like if he had a beard. But he doesn't have a beard, so he's he's not as cool as you would be if you wore gentlemen. Nah, <laughs> it's And funny. then uh there's another one, a juniper scent that smells like juniper and like a I think it has some uh some other foresty scents in it. So it's very refreshing and a little bit of fruity smelling. I think it's got like grapefruit smell in it.
3: Nice.
0: And then,
2: uh, then the other one we have is just like the general pine cedar smell. So
3: So no matter which way you go, you're going to be some sort of manly.
2: Yeah, exactly. So
3: if you're a woman with a beard, not really. No. Yeah. Unless you want to smell like a lumberjack. <laughs> <you know. laughs> Cool. So, well well yeah. tell us how we can get connected with you. So you run Presbyterian Memes page on Facebook and Presby uh-huh. Memes is the name of the Twitter handle. Yes. Okay, with a Y P R E S B Y memes. Yes. Okay. Mhm. And then your yeah. blog again is reformedtheonomy.wordpress.com. Okay. And uh and how else can we how else can we get connected with you? Are we allowed to uh, send you a friend request on Facebook? Or... Yeah,
2: you can yeah. I add you, but the first time somebody says something wrong, I delete them.
3: So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm treading on thin ice right now, I'm just is that kidding. what this is all about? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this this whole this conversation that we're having, this is a test of friendship to see if I can still be a friend on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of memes, Dustin wants to put a few up as Rick, as like, you know, sort of a preview of all of your art artistry. What are your favorite ones? Well,
2: Brandon made that one. Dude, all the memes that, well, okay. One meme I altered, it was a Roman Catholic meme that said, it It showed a pic- four pictures, uh, a Hindu, a Buddhist, and a Muslim, and then a Roman Catholic person. And they all had funny hats on and it said, you know, Buddhism, funny hat. And then under it had a checkbox that had bacon, but it wasn't checked. And they all said that except Christianity, and it said bacon and funny hat. (laughs) So all I did to that was change the picture of the the Roman Catholic cardinal or whatever to a picture of John Calvin. And then I reposted it, and then it went viral. (laughs) Then the only other one that went, like, insanely viral was the one that Brandon made the other, like, last week of the inspirational quote calendar that said, uh, you know, those Christian cheesy calendars that are inspirational Bible quotes or whatever. Yeah. But this one had the verse where Satan is tempting Jesus and he says, I'll give you all the, I forgot exactly what it said, like, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the swirls or something oh. like that.
3: <laughs> if you bow down and worship me. <laughs> yeah. Oh
2: my goodness. And it's like the person whoever made that clearly did not know what the Bible said, the context of that <laughs> verse. Or the end so, of the you know sentence. What? Colin, <laughs> yeah. What?
1: what That's so funny because Colin, remember when I was in a, a and we met up. Yeah. Um, actually, at that conference, um, one of the speakers, Abner Chow, he actually he actually made a joke about that Luke four four, quoting out of context, and how really
3: Abner Chow yeah. has a really good sense of humor. He's a funny guy, so he made the same joke.
2: Yeah, and it literally, I can't even remember how many shares it got, but. It was a lot. And then Catholic memes shared it, I think. And then like every memes page, you know, posted, posted it after Presbyterian memes did. And Catholic memes has thousands of followers, like yeah. a lot. And, uh, our shares were more than theirs. So that's pretty cool. Wow. <laughs> look at you. Yeah. You mean, you mean Antichrist memes? Yeah. Antichrist memes. Yeah, exactly.
3: Oh, cool. Well, um, Paul, just thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about about your stuff and you know educating us on some differences here and there. Um, we will be sure to – we're going to include links to all of the different stuff that we talked about in the description of the episode, so be sure to check that out. Shane, did you have anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? Uh, nope. Nope. Well, uh, thanks guys for listening. This is Dat Postmill. You can find us at datpostmill.com. You can find us on Facebook, Dat Postmill. For our, on Facebook, it's two words, Dat Postmill, but still one L in Postmill. You can find us on Twitter, at Dat Postmill, and just keep hashtagging Dat Postmill. I
1: like that. Hey, I know doing all this, but <laughs> another one, let's go, walk, talk, eat, drink, sleep, dream.
0: gospel, wake, pray, read, dress, work, think, gospel, press, fellowship, guest, church, hear, see, gospel, everything,
1: gospel, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere.